Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. Uh, the first service, I totally forgot to put my mic on, so uh, you guys got the real deal, right? We're rehearsed this morning, so uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Brandon. Uh, if you are new or visiting, I just want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us this morning. If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, we would love to be able to do that. Come find me or Becky or somebody else that looks like they know where they're going around here. We'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged into the community here, so... Uh, two weeks ago, we uh, started a new series taking a look at the fruit of the Spirit, uh, which is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And in that passage, it describes the, the kind of transformed life uh, that, of those who follow Jesus that's characterized by being marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we began our study, we highlighted the reality that the fruit of the Spirit is not some list of virtues that we're just supposed to be trying really hard to attain as Christians. In fact, what we saw is that they're actually not things that we can produce in and of ourselves. Instead, what we saw is that the fruit of the Spirit is something that is supernaturally produced in us as the transforming power of the gospel takes deep root in our hearts. And in other words, we saw how believing and responding to the truths of the gospel, to the, to the person and the work of Jesus, is, not, is the one thing that not only can, but will invariably, inevitably produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so as we examine our hearts and our lives over the course of our series here, taking a look at the fruit of the Spirit, the, the goal is not to get you to think, oh, I see this area of fruitlessness in my life. I just really need to try to work hard at being more loving. I just really need to try to work hard at, at having more joy. That, that one, that doesn't work. Uh, but two, that's not the goal. Instead, the, the goal is, is that we would ask ourselves the question, what is it about the gospel? What is it about the person and the work of Jesus that has not yet taken deep root in my heart? You see, what is it about who he is and all that he has done for me that I need to spend time dwelling on and allowing to take deep root in my heart so that that fruit of the Spirit would be naturally produced in me? Last week, we took a look at the first and most foundational aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is, which is love, and we saw how the kind of love that the Spirit produces is this otherworldly kind of love, that, that it's a love not motivated by reciprocal benefits, it's a love not motivated or based on merit or worth. Instead, it's a love that's rooted in the choice to sacrificially value another as more highly than ourselves. And we saw how the only way that, we, uh, that that kind of love characterizes us is when we see and remember and keep coming back to the reality that that's how Jesus has loved us. That he didn't love us because we were worthy of being loved. He didn't love us because we were impressive. He didn't love us because we started to love him first. Instead, he loved us in the midst of our rebellion and our opposition towards him. And he did it so that uh, and when we encounter his love for us, then that's, his love starts to overflow out of us. And that's what characterizes us. And so with love, as it is with all the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, we saw it's only when the truths of the gospel take deep root in our heart that our character becomes increasingly transformed so that we start looking more and more like Jesus. But love isn't the only thing that's produced in us when the gospel takes deep root in our heart, nor, I might add, is it, is it produced by itself. You see, remember, we, we talked about the first week, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. 
What happens is God produces them in us as one. Slowly but surely they happen in us. And so as we study uh, this morning, what we're going to see is that in addition to love, what we're going to see is that joy as well will inevitably and increasingly characterize us when the good news of the gospel keeps taking deep root in our hearts. And so as we study this morning what God's word has to teach us about joy, we're going to use the same roadmap that we did last week. One, we're going to try to define it, highlighting what God's word has to say about it. Secondly, we'll try to highlight some counterfeit versions that we mistake for the real thing, some counterfeit versions that actually keep us from experiencing the real thing. And lastly, we'll examine what it is about the gospel, what it is about the person and the work of Jesus that we need to see and believe in order for this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in us. So basically this morning we're, we're asking the questions, what is joy, what isn't joy, and the gospel roots that produce the spiritual fruit of joy in our lives. So that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive in together. God, thanks for our time uh, to gather together this morning. We're really grateful. Thanks that you would give us a space to do that. Thanks that you would, that you would uh, enable us to be here together. And, and so, God, as we do every week, we want to we wanna begin our time together just by acknowledging and reminding ourselves of our need for you. God, I need you to empower me to speak and to teach what is true and right and good, but more than that, with power and authority. God, I can't do that without you. And And we as well cannot hear and rightly respond to your word, God, without your spirit enabling us to do that, without you softening our hearts and enabling us to to understand and to respond rightly. And so we come really needing you, God, this morning as we do every week. And we we ask that you would meet us in our need for you. We're grateful that you promised to do that. And so, God, for our joy, uh, for our good, if more than anything, for your great glory, we ask that you'd meet us in our need for you as we study this morning. In your good name, God, amen. Amen. Well, again, when it comes to joy, the, the reality is that all of us want to experience happiness. In fact, the reality is that, that every one of us has an insatiable desire for happiness. It's, it's something that really drives everything that we do. Blaise Pascal, he's a famous French philosopher and mathematician, he, he summed it up this way. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. I suppose he includes women as well, but it was the 17th century. So anyways, um, This is without exception, he says, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. You see, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. You see, a desire for happiness, a pursuit of happiness, is the thing that drives everything we do. And believe it or not, the reason that that's the case, the reason why this desire for happiness drives what we do is because God has actually hardwired our souls with a, with a longing and a desire and an unrelenting passion for it. But, but God's desire is not merely that we would be happy. You see, what God wants for us is that we might have joy. And that's very distinct from happiness in a few ways we'll get to in a few minutes this morning. But, but what's important to see as we begin is that the desire for joy that God's hardwired into the heart of all of us is, is actually a desire that can only be satisfied in him. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, David, he writes this way, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David, what he's saying is that God is not merely the means to attain joy. 
He is the source of joy itself. It's found in him. Jesus echoes this very idea in John chapter 15. He, he's talking to the disciples about the, the urgent necessity and importance of knowing him and staying connected to him. And in verse 11, he tells us this. He says, I've told you this so that my joy might be in you. He says, and so that your joy may be complete. You see, what's clear throughout Scripture is that God wants our joy. But don't misunderstand me here. You see, God's primary goal isn't our joy. God's primary goal is always his own glory. The good news, though, is that God's glory and our joy, they always overlap. You see, because more than any other human emotion or experience, joy is the thing that clearly reveals the the worth and the value and the splendor of whatever it is that causes our joy. John Piper, he, he says it this way. He says, joy is the clearest witness to the worth of what we enjoy. It is the deepest reverberation in the heart of man of the value of God's glory. Here's what he's saying. In other words, he's saying simply this. Joy or delight is the single most effective means of glorifying and magnifying God. Joy is the thing that glorifies God the most. When we enjoy him most, more than anything else, it reveals how good he is. It reveals his glory, it reveals his splendor, it reveals his goodness. And so our joy in him is is connected with his glory. See, the problem is, though, is that instead of seeking the kind of satisfying and sustaining joy that we really want, and that actually brings us joy, and that actually brings God glory, we settle for all kinds of temporary and fleeting spurts of happiness, and we try to get them in whatever way we think we can get it. And so as we as we study this, this morning what God's word has to say about the kind of joy that God designed us for, what I want to do is highlight some of the counterfeits that keep us from experiencing the real thing because I think in seeing some of the counterfeits, what we'll actually do is we'll get a better picture of the kind of joy that God's designed us for. And so let's, so let's begin there. Three, three counterfeit joys I want to highlight this morning. The first counterfeit joy is simply this. It's just blissful ignorance, right? Blissful ignorance, or, or I might add distracted delusion to that. You see, oftentimes the way that we go about trying to get happiness, the way that we try to go about being happy or pursuing that feeling, is we just try to ignore the difficulties in our lives, or we try to distract ourselves from the pain or the hardships of of reality. We, We just try not to think about the problems in our world or in our lives, or more importantly, what happens often, we just try not to think about the problems in us, because we know we got enough crap in our own hearts that's going on. And so in order to distract ourselves or ignore it, we try to numb ourselves or distract it with careers or kids or relationships or, or activities or entertainment or alcohol or whatever else it is. And we try to use those things as ways to keep us from having to spend time thinking about and dealing with, with the realities of what's going on in the world and in our lives. And that's nothing new. Blaise Pascal, again, I spoke about him earlier. He said in the 17th century, he said this, being unable, he says, to cure death and wretchedness and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things at all. They just try to ignore it, right? You see, what we all know is that might work for a little while. It might work for a little while, but as with any distraction or any delusion, the harsh reality of, of, of the light of reality and inevitably comes streaming through the cracks in the curtains we try to put up. It's like whenever you go to a hotel 
right? It's like, no matter how hard you try, the curtains, there's always like one beam of light that comes straight through, and it's always straight on your eye, like every time. I don't even know how it's possible, right? But it's like every morning, you're like, I was really sure I covered up every part of this window, and yet the reality of the morning comes streaming in, right? And that's what happens with us, with distractions and delusion. No matter how hard we try, the reality, the light of reality comes streaming in eventually, and it steals our happiness, but joy is different. See, joy is different. See, happiness cannot coincide with suffering and problems and difficulties in our world or in our lives or in ourselves, but you need to see this joy can. You see, because instead of being based on subjective feelings, joy is something that's rooted in an objective reality. It's in a rooted in an objective truth. First Peter chapter 1, he's, first Peter's writing to churches who are suffering all kinds of things throughout the, the ancient world. He, he writes to them, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in his great mercy, he says, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, he says, that can never perish. It can't spoil. It can't fade. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He goes on in verse 4, he says, In all of this, in light of those realities, because of those truths, he says, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while you've been made to suffer grief and trials of all kinds. He goes on. He says, these come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by the fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious kind of joy. You see that inexpressible, that glorious kind of joy that Peter writes about that characterized these believers in the midst of suffering? You see, it comes from an unshakable hope that the gospel secures for us and that we obtain, that we have by faith. Romans chapter 15, verse 3 says it this way. Paul's writing to the churches in Rome. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, he says, as you trust in him so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. I need you to see this. You see, the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. And we know that because over and over and over again throughout Scripture, we see joy and sorrow overlapping each other. They happen at the same time. That first Peter passage we just read, in the midst of suffering, he says there was greatly rejoicing. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 10, Paul writes, among other things, that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, it tells us about Christians, it says, who suffered along with those in prison. It says, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. It says, because they knew they had a better and more lasting possession. You see, joy comes from a confident hope in the promises of God. It doesn't require us to dismiss or ignore or distract ourselves from the difficulties or the pain of life and the reality therein. You see, what happens is that joy transcends those things, and what it does is it enables us to face those things with a kind of hope and head-on nature. You see, the problem is that so often people come to church and they think, 
if I just get a little bit of God, if I just get a little bit, if I just get a little bit of church, if I get a little bit of him, then, then, then that'll fix me. Then, then my pain will be gone. The things I'm going through, I'll stop suffering, that, that, that it'll heal that part of me. I just need to shoot straight with you this morning. The Bible doesn't give us any of those kinds of promises on this side of heaven. The Bible does not tell us that our lives are going to get easy or better when we follow Jesus. You see, in fact, Jesus actually tells you the very opposite. He says that in this world we will have trouble. But he's not doing that so that we would just kind of get our, get our, get our uh, expectations in order. No, that shouldn't cause us sorrow because although we will have trouble and sorrow and hardship in the midst of this world, he says we can still have hope and joy because although we have trouble, he has overcome the world. And so joy is not blissful ignorance, nor is it distracted delusion. Secondly here, joy is not the same thing as momentary pleasure. You see, sometimes we ignore or try to detract ourselves with a, from our problems or our experiences uh, to in order to experience Hafton. But oftentimes we just pursue momentary pleasures because we think that'll make us happy in the moment. We go after things that make us feel happy, things that are pleasurable in the moment. We go after possessions or relationships or experiences or status or influence or whatever it might be. But just like ignoring or, or distracting ourselves, the happiness those things give us is always fleeting. It's always temporary. You see, the, the high that we get from those forms of happiness, what happens is the more we go after it, the duller and duller and duller it gets. And so what happens is we just keep needing more of it and more of it and more of it. And we end up turning into happiness junkies who are always just looking for our next fix to get us by in the middle of it. You see, in contrast, the King David, he writes in Psalm, four, six, Psalm chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. He says, but you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Grain and, and new wine, they were symbols of wealth and prosperity in the ancient world. So David is saying, he's basically saying, let the wealthy have what they want. Let people go after the things that they think will satisfy. Let people run after the things that they think make them happy. Here's the deal. Even when they get it, Jesus, God, you, you have more joy in you than all of that combined. You're still better than, there's more joy to be had in you, God, than there is to be had in the, when I can get any other kind of joy. You see, what God's word does over and over, it reminds us that, that an ever-increasing, eternal, legitimate, real kind of joy, it cannot be found apart from a relationship with God. Now, I just need to be clear. God, it's, I'm not saying that you can't experience pleasure apart from God. That's dumb, right? Of course you can. You see, but what the Bible is saying is that you cannot experience real joy. You cannot experience pleasure in the way it was always meant to be outside of a relationship with God himself. See, the problem, like C.S. Lewis famously put it, is that we are far too easily pleased. Some of you are here this morning, and you have been endlessly searching for life and joy. You've been looking for it down all these self-depleting dead-end streets, and what you keep finding is that those wells run dry quickly. They are, they are inevitably found to be empty. And what happens, though, is that you just keep settling for them. 
In his book, The Way to Glory, C.S. Lewis, he sums it up this way. He says, we are half-hearted creatures. We're fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. He says, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased, he writes. You see, joy is not found in momentary pleasure. Oh, that we would not be ignorant children making mud pies in the slums when the offer of joy God has for us is extended freely. And so momentary pleasure, ignorant bliss, they are counterfeit joys. And last but not least, I think most importantly, I would say circumstantial happiness is a counterfeit joy. You see, so often the happiness that we have, the thing that we're striving after, is really just this fragile vase that any amount of hardship or, or even just uncertainty, it easily tips it over and causes it to shatter. You see, when things are going your way, you are happy. When you are experiencing blessing, you're happy. But as soon as things start getting difficult, as soon as things start not working out for you, you lose your happiness. You see, and I need you to see, that's not joy. See, the kind of joy God wants us to have is deep and durable. It can't be taken by people. It cannot be overcome by situations. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, they get sent out to preach the gospel and to plant new churches. And, and although people were becoming Christians, they were facing and encountering more and more and more opposition. And they were getting thrown out of all kinds of places. Starting in verse 50 of Acts 13, it says that the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they expelled them from their region. And so they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them. And they went on to Iconium. Passage ends this way, and the disciples, it says, were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And you read that and you're thinking, um, I think there's a typo. Like, that can't, that can't be what happened. They just got kicked out of a town for preaching the gospel. They, their doors for ministry just got slammed shut in their face, and yet they're full of joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to the wealthy but stingy Corinthian church about the sacrificial generosity of the impoverished Macedonian church. And he says it this way, he says in verse 1, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, he says, for in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, he says, welled up into a You see, in the midst of severe trial, in the midst of poverty, they overflowed with joy that welled up in generosity. That doesn't make sense to us. You see, circumstantial happiness is a counterfeit of joy that comes when our happiness is rooted in the blessings we are currently experiencing or that we feel we are currently lacking, but not the blesser himself. You see, the way you find out if your joy is false is if it's always temporary. This is based on blessings, but it doesn't go beyond to the blesser, to God himself, and to a rejoicing in him. You see, in John 16, Jesus tells his disciples about the kind of joy that they're going to have when they see him after his resurrection. And in verse 22, he says this. He says, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, he says, and no one will be able to take away you. See, the mark of real joy is that it's not subject to circumstances because it's not rooted in circumstances. 
It's rooted in God himself. Jesus is telling these disciples, he says, if your joy is grounded in me, if it's found in, in seeing me, then, then circumstances are not the thing which really give you your greatest security and, and safety and identity and joy. He says situations change and, and people change and governments change and the world changes and the stock market changes. And if, if your joy is resting in those things, it will always be fleeting. It will always be temporary. He says, but if your joy comes from seeing me, for who I really am. He says, then you'll have a kind of joy that cannot be taken away. One that isn't, one that isn't just shatterable. One that's deep, one that's durable, one that lasts. See, and that brings us to the, the question, that brings us to the gospel roots that produce the spiritual fruit of joy in us. See, how do you get that kind of a joy? How do you get that kind of a joy that's not dependent on circumstances, that's not, it doesn't require you to ignore the realities of the world, that, that isn't just based on momentary pleasures? You see, the way that you get that kind of joy, the Bible says, is by seeing and responding to the good news of who Jesus is and the hope that he has secured for you. In Luke chapter 10, we read this verse around Christmas every year. There's an angel who appears to the shepherds in the fields by night, and he says this to these shepherds. He says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, he says, that will cause great joy for all the people. What's the news? Verse 11, it says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, Christ, the Lord. You see, the angel's message is good news that brings great joy because the reality is, is that we needed a Savior. Ephesians 2 tells us that that without God, we are dead in our sins. We are alienated from him. We are enemies of his without hope and that we are subject justly to his wrath and says, but goes on in verse four and five, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ for even when we were dead in our transgressions, it says it's by grace that you've been saved. And you cannot miss this this morning. Jesus saves us not merely by wiping away our sin or our guilt. He does not just offer us an escape. Instead, what we see in Scripture is that Jesus rescues us by taking on our own sin and our own pain and our suffering and our anguish so that you and I might get his life and his joy. Isaiah 53 tells us this way, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one with whom people uh, hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, it says, he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. It's by his wounds we've been healed. Verse 11 goes on. It says, and after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. For by him, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, uh, 10 or 12, it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross. See, the joy that was set before him was our joy in him. Our enjoyment of him forever. 
That's the joy that was set before him. It's, it reveals his glory. It points to it. You see, it's only when you see that Jesus has done that for you, when it's only when you see that in, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, that he suffered your penalty and your guilt, and he took on your shame so that you might have life and joy in him. It's only when you see that and remember that and keep coming back to that reality that what will happen is you will have a, a kind of joy that is deep and durable that's not based on circumstances or moments momentary experiences of happy happiness, but it will be an abiding joy. It comes from realizing the gravity of your guilt and the sin that you have, which has been overcome by God's grace made known towards you in the gospel, which has been proved by Jesus' life given for you. And so what happens is what wells up in you is gratitude that gets expressed in joy. Paul Tripp, he says it this way, Joy rises out of gratitude, and gratitude comes from recognizing the gravity of our condition and at the same time the glory of God's rescuing grace. You see, lasting joy, he goes on to say, is the product of constant gratitude, meditating on the blessings of grace rather than the troubles of this life. You see, our, our default posture is always to be keenly aware of what we do not have, it's always to be very aware of what we feel like we lack. I need you to hear this this morning. If you actually want to experience joy, then there is no better way than to become an expert in all the ways that God has been good to you. Learn to walk in thankfulness. Learn to walk in gratitude. And what will happen is joy will come out. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5 says it this way. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my innermost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things. So that your strength is renewed, your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 126 verse 3 says it this way, the Lord has done great things for us. So we, it says, are filled with joy. You see, the way you get joy, a kind of deep, durable, lasting joy, not circumstantial happiness, not momentary pleasure, the only way you get it is by dwelling on him. When you see how much you needed him, how, 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 how hopeless you were without him, and yet you see the hope and the joy and the life and the inheritance that you have by faith in him, what happens is what wells up in your heart is joy. In the midst of all kinds of trials, in the midst of all kinds of difficulties, what you get is joy. You see, joy, it comes by remembering reminding ourselves about the good news of the gospel that the angel proclaimed to those shepherds 2,000 years ago. You see, and that's what we're doing when we take communion. We are reminding ourselves of the truths of the gospel, reminding ourselves about who Jesus is and who we are without him and who we are with him because of all that he has done for us. We're reminding ourselves of how he suffered and how he was broken and bloodied so that we might be able to find a joy that we were always designed to have. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves so that in remembering Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us, in remembering the promise and the life and the hope, 
that his broken body and shed blood secures for us that we would have a kind of joy that can never be taken away. That, and that in enjoying him, in delighting in him, we would live lives of holiness committed unto him. Not trying to be satisfied by counterfeit kinds of joys, but finding all the hope and pleasure we need in the midst of him. And so this morning as we sing and worship and remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, then when you're ready, go back and take communion. If you miss the elements on your way, you're able to grab them on the table on the way in. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to have trusted in Jesus. He must be your source of joy. See, but if not, if you're here this morning and you're just figuring out who Jesus is to you and what it might mean to follow him and, and you realize that the kind of joy that I have been talking about is not the kind of joy that characterizes your own heart and life yet, I just need you to hear this. You are welcome here. I am so glad that you would even join us this morning. I hope you know you are welcome here. But I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You see, communion is about remembering the good news of the gospel See, the only way you bear the spiritual fruit of joy is, is to rejoice and delight in the salvation that Jesus died so that you might have. And so receive him before you receive communion. This morning as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song, talk with God. What are, what are you looking to for happiness that is getting in the way of the joy, the real kind of joy that God designed that you might live in? What are the counterfeit joys that you keep finding yourself settling for? And how does remembering the hope that you have because of the gospel, how does that empower you to pursue joy in God and to reject the kind of counterfeits joy that, joys that always leave you longing? You see, God longs for your joy. He designed you so that you might have joy that can only be found by delighting in him. And when you get that kind of joy and that kind of delight, what happens is it ruins you for everything else. And you'll be satisfied in him and you'll have a joy that's deep and durable, that cannot be taken, that cannot be shattered. It's a kind of joy that's good news, not just to you, but to others. That and let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning grateful for you, thankful that you have loved us, that you have uh, given yourself for us, not when we were worthy of it, not when we were coming after you, but in our, the midst of our rebellion and our rejection of you. God, we recognize that without you coming to rescue us, that we would justly be under the wrath that you have for sin because we have rebelled against you. But God, we come this morning grateful, God, full of joy. God, instead of giving us what you deserve, you came to take the penalty yourself. Help us, King Jesus, to remember today and every day all that you have done for us so that in remembering all of the things that you have done for us, we would be glad. We'd be filled with joy. God, we need you. Help us to remember for our joy for the joy of others that they might see it in us and for your great glory as we enjoy you. Pray these things in your good name. Amen.